As we're talking about Christmas, I'm going to um, start a series today called The Christmas Story. And I want to start by just laying out the foundation for Jesus, who Jesus is as the Messiah, as the one who was born King of the Jews, the one who was born in the manger, the one who fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament. And as we do that tonight at the candlelight service, we're going to talk about his birth. But this morning, I wanted to lay that foundation. So as, as we do that, you can go ahead and turn your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. And the title of my sermon is Son of Abraham and Son of David. And I want to give you a little intro as you're turning in your Bibles as we prepare to go there. How many of you have purchased a product from Ancestry.com? And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just wanting to show of hands. Has anyone done that? Ancestry.com, DNA or family tree genealogies and things like that. Well, I was doing a little bit of research about Ancestry.com. It was very interesting that they average over a billion dollars in revenue every year. And they operate in 30 different countries. And the question that I have is, why is that such a big business? Why do so many people find it interesting to figure out where they came from, who their ancestors were, the, the different events that may have taken place in their families. Why is that so captivating? Well, I believe it's captivating because family trees and genealogies alike tell us so much about who we are and where we came from. And I think we naturally want to find our identity. We naturally want to find who were our ancestors and where do we come from? You know, were there health problems? Were there people of great, um, you know, reputation in my family tree? Or were there any famous people in my family tree? It's a very intriguing, I think, thing to research. And that's why we see that so many people go to those sites and purchase those products, which I think is an interesting and a, and a good thing to do. Nothing wrong with that. But here in Matthew chapter 1, we see the genealogy of Jesus. And the Jews were very, very interesting in this respect because as we find it interesting to research our family trees or our genealogies, you can multiply that by 20 times. And that's how interested the ancient Jews were in their genealogies. Now, they were interested for some reasons other than ours. You know, in our society, we just kind of like the, the, the excitement of researching and finding new things. But for them, their ancestors carried great weight in their culture and in their society. Sometimes their family lines would tell them what rights they have in society. Sometimes it would point to what tribe they were a part of or what positions they could serve in in religious activities. And also, as well, it would tell them what their inheritance would be one day. So to the ancient Jews, genealogies were everything. It was something they were very aware of. It was something that they would have shared with their children. It was something that would have been well-documented and well-researched. It wasn't something that they would have had to buy a product on Ancestry.com because as long as their family had been doing what other Jews historically had done, they would have had very good documentation about their roots and about the people that were their ancestors. So here in the book of Matthew, Matthew is writing the gospel for the primary purpose to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. So if you want to know what is the purpose for the book of Matthew, why did Matthew sit down and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit pen this book? It was so that he could prove that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the King. Neither Matthew nor the gospel, any of the gospels give any other indication of why this book was written. It was simply to prove that fact that Jesus is the Messiah. And what's interesting is, is Christianity started with Jews. The first many, many Christians 
that were ever converted and come to Christ were Jews. It wasn't until Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 that the Gentiles began to get saved. So the foundation of our faith lies with people who were traditionally Jews, people who had grown up knowing the Old Testament scriptures, had grown up holding dear their ancestry and their genealogies, and who came to faith in Christ. So now Matthew is writing this book to these Jewish Christians called Matthew. He's writing this book to authenticate the questions that they would have had. They would have said, well, you know, how do I really know that Jesus is the Messiah? Because the prophet Isaiah said that he would be of the root and branch of Jesse. Uh, Isaiah would have said that he would have been like a lamb slaughtered. You know, there's these different things that the Jews would have been going back to in the Old Testament and they would have been saying, well, how does this Jesus match up to the Old Testament prophecies? Because in reality, that's where it would have stood with them. Because listen, their whole life at bedtime, while they were sitting at the dinner table, while they were out working in the field with their parents, whatever it may have been, those would have been the conversations that the families would have been having with their children. You know, son, we are of the nation of Abraham. Abraham is our father. Abraham is the one God blessed. And this great nation exists because of the promise God made with Abraham. Uh, son, you know that King David was the greatest king that we ever had. And that one day there's coming another king who will be from the lineage and the ancestry of David. And these kids would have been inundated with that to the point where when they grew up and now this man named Jesus comes on the scene that they're claiming is the king, they would have been saying, now wait a minute, because I know for a fact that he's got to check this box, this box, this box, and this box. He's got to fulfill the prophecies that were given in order for him to really be the Messiah. Here Matthew is going to say, well, guess what? He checks every box. He fulfills all the prophecies. He truly is the king who was promised from old. So as we look at that, I want us to use the genealogy of Jesus and I want us to go the way of Matthew in not only talking about Jesus, not only saying that Jesus is the king, but proving that Jesus is the king. So if you're taking notes, we're going to start with this first point and then we're going to stand and read. If you're taking notes, the first thing we're going to look at is that Jesus was the son of Abraham. The son of Abraham. All right. So if you will go ahead and stand to your feet. We're going to begin in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 1. Now I did this almost flawlessly in the first service. I can't guarantee that I'll do it again. All right. It's a tongue twister coming up. All right. Beginning in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 1. It says, An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Ammon. Ammon fathered Josiah. And Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. 
After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Sheatil. Sheatil fathered Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel fathered Abiud. Abiud fathered Eliakim. Eliakim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Achim. Achim fathered Eliud. Eliud fathered Eleazar. Eleazar fathered Methan. Methan fathered Jacob. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Fathers, we look at the genealogy of the Lord Jesus. We know this is normally scripture that we would just kind of overlook, scripture that we wouldn't really take time to dig into. But God, as believers, that the word of God is fully inspired by the Holy Spirit. Lord, we believe that this genealogy is inspired. We believe that this genealogy are your words and that your words are infinitely important no matter how obscure we may think they are. And Lord, today as we think about Jesus, the Messiah, the king who was born in a manger in Bethlehem, Lord, we know that there are many questions that people have. And Lord, as we truly evaluate the scriptures, we find that the evidence that Jesus is who he said he is is overwhelming. That there are so many prophecies fulfilled. That there are so many factual accounts recorded. God, that even the very genealogy of our Lord was so meticulously kept that we have it today. Lord, we have this overwhelming evidence that points to the fact that you are who you said you were. So thank you for being the king, and also thank you for being that precious infant in the manger. Lord, we know that without your birth, there would be no crucifixion, and without the crucifixion, there would be no resurrection. So Lord, today we honor you in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So as we begin this genealogy, in other words, Matthew is starting out by saying, this is where Jesus came from. If you really want to follow the prophecies, if you really want to go back in the Old Testament and start making sure Jesus matches all the qualifications given from the prophets and Moses, then here's where we need to start. We need to start with Abraham. In verse 1, the third part of verse 1, it says, the son of Abraham. Now, why would it have been so important that Matthew stated that Jesus was the son of Abraham? Well, Abraham was profoundly important to the Jews because he was the father of their nation. And he was also that figure that represented their heritage. There's no way that someone could have been king of Israel and been honored by the Jewish people unless he had been the son of Abraham. The Jews even considered it a badge of honor to be known as the son of Abraham. Now we know Abraham had lived uh, thousands of years before Jesus, that he was a historical figure even in the days of Jesus, but he was one that was greatly revered by the Jewish nation. In John chapter 8, Jesus comes to this place where he's talking with the Jews and the Pharisees, and they're beginning to accuse him of being demon-possessed and accuse him of blasphemy, saying that, you know, you can't forgive sins. Who are you to forgive sins? You're not God. And Jesus begins to counter with these statements. Jesus said in verse 49 of John 8, I do not have a demon. On the contrary, I honor my father and you dishonor me. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and judges. Truly I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Then the Jews said, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died and so did the prophets. 
You say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you claim to be? Jesus said in verse 54, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. My father about whom you say he is our God, he is the one who glorifies me. You do not know him, but I know him. If I were to say I don't know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews replied, you aren't 50 years old yet and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple. Here Jesus is combating this idea that Abraham is almost a figure, almost like a deified figure to the Jews at this point in their history. Almost a point where they might even possibly worship Abraham and the idea that they are children of Abraham. And here God is not disrespecting Abraham because we know that Ab or Jesus is not disrespecting Abraham because we know that Abraham is very important in this redemptive story of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus is careful to say that, yes, you may be children of Abraham, but before Abraham was, I was. Before Abraham was, I am. I am God, the eternally past existent God, the eternally present existent God, and the eternally in the future existent God. And what he's saying here is, is that I understand this, but I am the king. Here it shows that the Jews were very, very concerned about Abraham and concerned with being identified as his children. This would have been so important for Jews who trusted Christ to understand that Jesus was in the direct genealogy and was a descendant of Abraham. So we think about Abraham, and as even, even as we've gone through the book of Galatians, we've talked a lot about the Abrahamic covenant or the covenant of promise. And really the covenant of promise is found in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 through 3. Now I want you to listen to this again. I know we've read it several times over the past several weeks but it is important to understanding of Jesus' genealogy here. In Genesis 12, verses 2 through 3, the Bible says this, I will make you into a great nation. This is God talking to Abraham. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So here, what he's saying is, is that the Jews always knew that there would be a descendant of Abraham who would fix all their problems. From the very beginnings of Scripture, it was prophesied there would be one who would come through Abraham who would bless the entire world. And Matthew knew very well that in order for these Jews to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, they had to know that Jesus was was of the seed of Abraham. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, the Bible says this, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed, who is Christ. In other words, Paul is testifying to the promise made to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant that when God told him that he would bless the world through his seed, he was literally referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who the promise was about, was the coming Christ who would bless the world. Listen, today I'm blessed because Jesus was born in a manger. 
Today I'm blessed because Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead. Today I'm blessed and my sins are forgiven because through the seed of Abraham, God had a son named Jesus. And that's what he's communicating to these Jews here. It's important for you to know that he was the son of Abraham. In Genesis 12, 7, this is the actual verse that Paul is referring to here. It says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And what Paul is saying is that word offspring, or in some translations, the word seed, is singular, referring to one person. So here he's saying, all right, number one, remember this. This Jesus is a son of Abraham. And as the Jews were going through what they knew to be true about the Old Testament, about the prophecies, they would have been checking boxes in their mind. Yep, he meets the criteria. Yep, yep, so far he's good. But then there was another person that he had to be the descendant of, and that was King David. So if you're taking notes, write this down. Not only the son of Abraham, but the son of David. Now, here in the beginning of the genealogy, Matthew is very careful to mention two men in this genealogy, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The reason he mentioned these two men was because these two men were pivotal in the Jews' understanding who the Messiah truly was, that Jesus truly was God in the flesh. David was profoundly important to the Jews, as Abraham was because he was the father of the nation, David was because David was really the founder and the establisher of the royal line in Israel. Now, don't get me wrong. David was not the first king of Israel. Saul was. But see, Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. And Saul was rejected by God ultimately because of his disobedience. Then God started over in the royal family with David, one of the tribe of Judah, a new family and a different family. And this is the family that the Jews knew the coming Messiah must sit on his throne. That Jesus would be the son of David because Jesus would sit on his father's throne, David. It was absolutely important because throughout the Old Testament and throughout the prophecies, you see time and time again that the throne of David will be established forever. Well, none of the earthly kings that sat on the throne of David lived forever. None of them had the ability to rule and reign forever. But what the Bible was teaching was that there's coming a day when there will be one who comes, who will be a son of David, who will establish the kingdom forever, and who will rule and reign forever. Today, we're looking forward to that millennial reign, when Jesus literally sits on the throne in Jerusalem at some point in the future. And then even after the millennial reign, the Bible teaches us that he will sit on his throne on the new heaven and the new earth where we will worship and praise him forever and ever. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise and of that prophecy. Many of you maybe remember the Russian royal family. Now, you'll remember them specifically when I mention this name, but historically, in generations past, Russia was ruled by a czar, and they had a family that was royal. In other words, when one king would die, the next child who was that man's descendant would rise up as king. And it was a, a royal family that ruled and reigned in Russia for many centuries. But the thing that was horrific that stopped that royal family was that they were horrifically slaughtered many years ago in the Bolshevik Revolution. The most famous of that royal family was known as Anastasia. And I'm sure that many of you have seen the documentaries and watched the movies and heard a lot about 
Anastasia, who was a princess at the time. The execution took place in 1918 by those who were fighting alongside Vladimir Lenin. And what they were trying to do was establish communism in Russia. What they did was they came in the middle of the night, they rounded up the royal family, they got them out of their beds, they escorted them to the basement, saying that they were taking them there to be safe. And while they were down there, they, they huddled them up into the corner of the room and they shot every one of them and killed them. And there began to be rumors that stirred after that execution and even after communism had its grip in Russia. And the rumor was that Anastasia and one of her brothers survived the execution. So then with that rumor stirring and growing larger and larger, there was many women who came forward claiming to be Anastasia. And they were wanting Anastasia's royal inheritance. They were wanting Anastasia's claim to the title and to the throne of the royal family. The most famous of those was Anna Anderson, who in the 1920s laid claim to Anastasia's inheritance. She claimed to be the missing princess. So for five decades, it was tied up in court as they were trying to hash out, is this really Anastasia? Is this really the princess? About uh, five decades into her quest, that says the court rejected her claim and ended her quest to be Anastasia. In the 1990s, though, the story, the plot thickens. In the 1990s, a grave was found, and the remains were confirmed to be those of the royal family, minus Anastasia and her brother. Seems like it was fueling the rumor that maybe Anastasia really was still alive. But it wasn't until 2007 that another grave nearby was found and the DNA test confirmed the remains belonged to Anastasia and her brother. So I say all that to say this. These, these women would come forward and they were saying, I'm Anastasia and the Russian royal throne is mine. I'm the only remaining offspring of the royal family. It's mine. But they couldn't prove it. They said, well, that's great. You know, I'm Ronald McDonald, but nobody, I don't have any proof. I can say whatever I want to say. But at the end of the day, if you're going to make claim to a royal inheritance or claim to be the ruler of a kingdom, you kind of need to have some proof for that because that's a really big deal, okay? Well, what, Matt, what Matthew's saying here is, guess what? Jesus came on the scene. He said, I'm the one. I'm the king. Before Abraham was, I am which was his claim to being God. He said, not only am I saying that I am the king, not only am I making a claim to the throne, but I've got the proof. Matthew is saying to all these Christian Jews, hey, we've got the proof that he's the real deal. We've got the proof that this Jesus has a right to the throne of King David, and we've got the lineage here to prove it. And as you're thinking about your Old Testament prophecies, as you're thinking about what God said would happen, guess what? It happened exactly as God said it would. Jesus checked all the boxes to lay claim to the throne of King David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, we find what's known as the Davidic covenant. So we talked about the Abrahamic covenant and its importance and how in the covenant itself, Jesus is mentioned as the blessing of the world. But then we go to the, forward to the Davidic covenant when God makes a promise to David. And guess who we find in the Davidic covenant? Jesus again. In verse, uh, uh, chapter, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, the Bible says this. God is talking to David. He said, your house and kingdom will endure 
before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13, the Bible says this. God is talking to David, and he says, When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. Now, if we stop right there, there's no one in here that would argue against he's talking about Solomon. Because Solomon was King David's biological son. King Solomon did reign after David died. And King Solomon did build the temple for God. And we would say that this is certainly only talking about Solomon, except for this last part of verse 13. God says, And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, Solomon didn't live forever, did he? No other earthly king who sat on the throne in Israel lived forever. Only Christ. Only Jesus can rule and reign forever. Only Jesus can fulfill this promise that God made to David that the throne of David through his very own descendants would rule and reign forever. Well, who was a descendant of King David? The Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ. We even see in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel that the future Messiah was referred to time and time again as the son of David. So as these Jews are being told that Jesus is the Messiah, they're going to start asking immediately, well, let me see his lineage. I've got to see his genealogy because I've got to make sure that he is a son of David because from a very young age, my mom and dad always told me that it was David's throne that he would sit on and it was David's family line that he would come through. And if this Messiah is not a son of David, then he cannot be the king. And Matthew said, well, let's just lay it out here. Let's just see if he truly is the king. We see there in verse 6, and Jesse fathered King David. Jesse fathered King David. We even see that a beggar named Bartimaeus, he heard that Jesus of Nazareth was nearby one day. And you know what he began to yell? Have mercy on me, son of David. Even the beggars were taught, this is the son of David. This is the king. And he, he can't be the king unless he's the son of David. Did you notice there in verse 6, David has an extra descriptive word by his name that no one else in the lineage has. In verse 6, and Jesse fathered King David. Well, you say, well, yeah, Ben, he was a king. But there were a lot of other kings in this lineage. Solomon was a king. Rehoboam was a king. Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joram, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. Have I made my point yet? These were all kings too. But as you can see in the genealogy, they didn't make claim that they were kings because it really only mattered that Jesus was the son of David. Who cares if he was the son of Jehoshaphat, although he was, but who cares? He didn't need to, he didn't need to prove that he was the son of Jehoshaphat to lay claim to the throne, but he had to, had to prove that he was the son of David. And here we see that Matthew is intentionally pulling the Jews to focus on that fact. In Genesis chapter 49, the, thought, the plot gets even thicker because there was another requirement that Jesus had to meet before he could be king. The prophecy in Genesis 49.10 said, The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belong to him. Here we see that the tribe of Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, was designated in Genesis chapter 49 verse 10 as the royal tribe. 
In other words, the king, the king that was promised, the great king, would have to be of the tribe of Judah. Well, what tribe was Jesus a part of, I wonder? When we go on down there in verse 2, Matthew chapter 1, Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Wow, Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. Another box checked. These Jews were starting to say, uh-oh, this is, this is interesting. Maybe this really is the Messiah. Maybe this really is the king that God had promised. It gets even deeper. It gets even thicker. King David, if you go back to 2 Samuel verse six, chapter 16, verse 1, was born and raised in the town of what? Y'all remember where David was born and raised? Y'all are scared to say it, aren't you? <laughs> Bethlehem. Bethlehem, right? Bethlehem historically is known as the city of David. Jesus, we know, was born in Bethlehem, the city of David, because of a census that the Roman Caesar demanded that the entire kingdom take part in. Now, Jesus would not have been in Bethlehem that day if it had not been for the census, but because his earthly father was Joseph, Joseph was a son of David. Therefore, Joseph had to go to Bethlehem to take the census, and it just so happened that he went to have the census taken about the time that Mary was expecting to have Jesus. And Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Why is it so important that Jesus was born in Bethlehem? Well, we find in Micah chapter 2, another one of the prophecies of the coming Messiah, that Jesus would come and be born in a town called Bethlehem. Bethlehem of Ephratah, the exact city of David that he was born in. Now the Jews, all these red lights are going on. Okay, this is him. This has got to be him. Jesus was born in Bethlehem because of that census. We know that God ordained and directed that census to happen. It said, in those days, in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Curinus was governing, governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now here, this genealogy, it's important for you to understand that the genealogy in Matthew is believed to be the genealogy of Joseph. Now you may say, well, Ben, that doesn't add a lot of weight to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah because we know that Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus. But for the Jews... This would have been very important. And that brings us to our third point. Not only was Jesus the son of Abraham, not only was he the son of David, but he is the Messiah. So if you're taking notes, write that down. He is the Messiah. So here in these geneal this genealogy in Matthew, because they trace it back through Joseph's family line, it would have meant the world to the Jews because the Jews did not accept genealogies that were traced back through women in the family. They were a very patriarchal society and a very patriarchal community. So they would not have even paid attention to a genealogy that had Mary's line traced. They would have only cared about Joseph's because they were concerned about the legality of Jesus' claim. Through the male descendants, does Jesus go back to David? And did you know that through the lineage of Joseph, he does? 
But did you also know that in Luke, you find the lineage of Jesus as well? And that's believed to be the lineage through Mary. Now, Luke was a Gentile. We know that. Luke was the only Gentile who wrote a book in the Bible. Luke would not have been as concerned with the patriarchal idea of genealogies that the Jews were concerned with. So he puts in the genealogy through Mary. And did you know that through Joseph and through Mary, Jesus was a son of David and a son of Abraham? No matter which way you go, up, down, sideways, north, south, it doesn't matter. Jesus is exactly who he said he was, and it perfectly lines up with every prophecy in the Old Testament that was pointing forward to the king of the Jews. So not only was he legally the son of Abraham through Joseph and legally the son of David through Joseph, but he was biologically the son of Abraham and David through Mary, and he is eternally and spiritually the true son of God because he's the Messiah. Now let's spend just a quick moment on this word Messiah. If you go back to chapter one, verse one of Matthew, it says an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now here you see that they don't just say Jesus. It's not just the genealogy of Jesus, but it's Jesus Christ. Now in the Greek here, that word is Christos, Christ. And what it literally means is the anointed one or the chosen one. Now the Jewish equivalent to Christ is the word Messiah, which also means chosen one or anointed one. So what Matthew's saying here is, is biologically, he's God in the flesh. Legally, he's God in the flesh. And spiritually and eternally, he is God in the flesh. He is the king of the Jews. He is Jesus. He is the prophesied one. He is the one that God anointed and chose before the foundation of the world to be slain like a lamb for the sins of mankind. This is truly who he is. So as we go on down, it talks about, um, it continues to go through the lineage. And then we get down to verse 17 and it talks about the generations. It says 14 generations between Abraham and David, 14 between David and the exile. And I want you to be careful. I want you to do this. I want you to go in and study this genealogy more. I want you to sit down with some commentaries. I want you to pick these names out and find out exactly who these people were. But what you're gonna find is, is that there are some missing. There are some uh, generations missing. In other words, there's some that were not necessarily the direct father to that next person as a son. And in the old Hebrew way of understanding this, to be the son of someone does not mean that you are directly their son. It could mean that you're just a descendant of them. So they believe that Matthew did this in groups of 14, uh, really explaining the most prominent characters in Jesus' genealogy so that people could remember it in those groups of 14. Also, we know that the, the name David, if you parse it out in Hebrew numerical systems, the word, the name David actually has a value of seven. So there's so many different things in there that you could look at and try to figure out why did they just do this in 14s. But the key is, is that Matthew is proving and proved that Jesus is the king. And I want to take you all the way back to the very first prophecy in the Bible about Jesus. And that's in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Because we're talking about the fact that he was the Messiah, all right? But there's a few things that had to happen in order for him to be the anointed one and the son of God. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 says this, the very first messianic prophecy in the entire Bible, the very first prophecy that points to the coming king who will fix all the wrongs, make everything right. It says this, as, as Adam and Eve have sinned, 
And God comes and he begins to judge the man, he judges the woman, he judges the serpent, and he judges Satan. Here is Satan's judgment in Genesis 3.15. I will put hostility between you and the woman, he says to Satan, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So what God is saying here to Satan is, is there's coming a day when your head is going to be crushed by the seed of the woman. Now, it's very interesting because, again, we're talking about Jewish culture, patriarchal society. When we talk to Abraham, God had no problem saying the seed of Abraham, Abraham being a man. He had no problem saying the descendant or seed of David, David being a man. But in this particular instance, he says that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, not the seed of the man. We go forward thousands of years and we find Mary in the town of Bethlehem. And we find out that she was a virgin. That there was no biological way that a man was involved in the pregnancy of Jesus. The Bible teaches us that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So in Genesis 3.15, we have the prophecy that points to not only will the Messiah come, not only will he crush the head of Satan, not only will he purchase for us a place in heaven, but he will be born and conceived by the Holy Spirit and a woman. Why does that matter? Because Jesus was fully God, because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus was fully man, because he was born of a woman. And Jesus could not have saved any of us if he had not been both. Because number one, a man can't be good enough to pay the price for all your sins. Only God can. But God can't die and bleed. Only a man can. So in the perfection of who Jesus Christ is, being fully God and fully man, God brought the two together in order to save us from our sins. Hey, listen, Jesus' beginning wasn't in the manger, by the way. Jesus is eternally God. Jesus was in the, in the beginning with God. Jesus holds everything together. Jesus is the creator. But Jesus humbled himself and became a man, born of a woman, so that we could be saved. Now, let me tell you, that ought to be something that gets us excited today. As we're moving forward to Christmas, as we're looking at the candlelight service tonight, not only did Jesus just claim that he was God, he proved he was God. Not only is Jesus just kind of God or happens to be a descendant of David, but he checks all the boxes of all the prophecies. He is truly the one who was anointed by God, touched by God, and chosen by God to be the prize for all of our sins. Today, we've got a lot to be thankful for. And you may be here this morning, you may say, Ben, you know, I've never accepted Christ. I've never come into a relationship with the Messiah. Maybe you're like a lot of these Jews that Matthew was talking to who just didn't quite believe it, you know? People can lay out all the proof in front of you that they want, but until the Holy Spirit comes your way and convicts your heart, you'll never trust in Jesus. And you know what I'm hoping for this morning? That the Holy Spirit's gonna be moving in and out of all these seats as we go into this time of worship. And let me tell you something. You may say, yeah, oh yeah, Ben, I did that when I was young. Have you ever truly been born again? Have you ever felt the presence of the Holy Spirit? Does the Holy Spirit truly within you? Does he truly indwell you? Hey, maybe this morning, maybe you need to get right with God. Maybe there's sin in your life. Because let me tell you something, I wouldn't want anything in between me and my Savior when I lay my head on my pillow at night. I'd want to be able to enjoy the Christmas season knowing that everything's okay with me and God. And hey, you know what? We have a God who says if you confess your sins and forsake them, that he'll forgive them. He's a merciful God. He's a God who loves you, a God who took your place on the cross and to pay the price for your sins. Let's pray.